You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. Today is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series where I interview incredible women attorneys and business owners about their career trajectory and experience as an entrepreneur. My guest today is Deisha Jackson. Deisha is the owner of the Deisha Jackson Law Group in Howell, New Jersey. Welcome, Deisha. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. You are welcome. So I was looking at your bio on your website, and it's pretty extensive, even though you were only 25. Exactly. All day, my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're a little older than 25. So we better get started, because we have a lot to go into. So the first question is always, where did you go to college, and what did you want to be when you grew up? I went to Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Um, I graduated in 93, and I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight years old. Eight. So why eight? What happened at eight? I I realized that I had a gift uh, for gab. Um, I also uh, was uh, compassionate at eight, nine, ten, um, trying to help other people. I also saw that I want, I also said to myself, I want to do something when I grow up that I could always uh, take care of myself. Um, One of the things I watch with my parents and with other people's parents and families is women who were taking a lot of uh, emotional abuse, if not sometimes physical abuse, and not being able to leave. There's children, there's, there's this sense of I can't go, I can't do it on my own. And I said, I never want to be that way. You know what I mean? I want to be able to uh, help people, but also, even if I don't have a job, I can hang out my own shingle. And so I was drawn to law after watching Perry Mason one day um, on a TV in a, in a show and seeing how, you know, they investigate the case and then he went to court. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I do that. You know what I mean? I'm so into that. And ever since I was eight, I said, you know, I think the law's for me. And, and so that's the track that I've been on. Did that ever waver at all? No, because nothing really fit. I mean, once I got into like middle school um, from like, I'm going to say like the seventh, from sixth grade to seventh, eighth, ninth, it really gelled because I was active in student government. Um, I was president in my class in high school for three years, vice president my freshman year. So all four years I was in student government. Um, My life was very busy. I was always popular. I was always doing things for others, helping people, fighting causes, changing bylaws. (laughs) And then when I went to college, continued I was in part of student government then you know and I was doing things to help people you know um, sticking up for when I was in college I remember I think I was a sophomore and one of the workers Spanish workers who worked in the not the cafeteria but we had like a little cafe like a colleges have was having a problem with how she was being treated by the boss and happened to tell me because you know you get to know the people yeah. there because you're going to school there and so I complained on her behalf and we went to the administration 
situation at Drew, and I represented her for all intents and purposes to the administration that what was going on was discrimination and that they had to do something about it, you know. So, you know, I've always known and I've always had a sense for um, wanting to make a difference, um, wanting to help people. Um, and that's who I was. I mean, I used to do, you know, those long, what are they, the marathon walks, like March of Dimes. And, you know, I was always giving, but I was always active in student government. I was always active. And if it wasn't that, it was my church. You know, I was, and I'm a leader. You know, I was, I'm a natural born leader. Um, and I realized that when I was in high school. Um, and during high school, a lot of my leadership development came. So I went to Hugh O'Brien. I went to Girl State. I went to every leadership training camp you can think of I've been to. Wow, I didn't get started on that until much later in life. So you were ahead of the curve. Yes. It also sounds like it was hard for you to stand by and watch an injustice. Yes. Because in college, when you were already advocating for people and you weren't even a lawyer yet, (laughs) that's really impressive. Yes. Because I think sometimes we have this attitude, especially when we're very young, to sort of shrink back a little bit, you know, kind of look around like what everyone else is doing and not stick your neck out. But it sounds like you were sort of the opposite. Oh, yes. Um, I didn't. And I think that might come more from being raised in a household um, uh, as a Christian. My father was a preacher. My mother was very much into the church. And I think that um, being raised to want to help and to love people and to, you know, make a difference came out of that kind of environment, you know, um, in growing up. So whatever your environment was when you were growing up, you said that you did see examples of situations where women were dependent on men Mm -hmm. and you didn't want to be that. Mm -hmm. But I found that a lot of times when a kid is in an environment like that, there's some example for them that's different. Because a lot of times we just repeat the pattern, Mm -hmm. right? We kind of do like what we've seen around Mm -hmm. us. So what for whatever you're comfortable talking about, Mm -hmm. what who would you say was that independent role model that you saw where you thought I don't have to be that, you know, I could be that instead? You know, It's hard to say because I grew up with a father, you know, and I've forgiven my father, but my father was more, um, how do you say, heavy handed, uh, disciplinarian. Um, At times I felt that he didn't even, he wished I was a boy, you know what I mean? Um, Very much not able to show the love that you would look for, you know what I mean? It was more about fear and control. And with a mom who, and my parents, they loved each other, I think, um, if you call that love, and they've accepted the negative qualities that they have. But my father could be like a raging bull. My mom did what she had to do because a lot of women my mother's age, my, and God rest their souls, they both have passed away, you know, they are of the ilk of you just stay, right? Yes. And you just take it, right? And I would look at her every day because my father would get crazy sometimes. And I'm like, why are you here? Let's go. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I and me, it was just let's go. I don't know if it was a particular person that I can recall when I was young who embodied but, but what I, who I am today. I think it was my circumstance that forged me to say, I'm not going to go through this. I'm not going to be with a man who treats me this way. 
and I'm not going to have to be stuck. That's not what life's about. And I support marriage. I support families. I support love. I support all of it. But a lot of relationships don't have healthy components to them. And as adults, we have to learn what unlearn the bad habits that we learned from our parents so we don't continue to attract emotionally unhealthy people into our lives and continue that cycle. That's excellent advice, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't ever learn that. That's why it's so frustrating to see someone who's in an abusive relationship where there's domestic violence, and it's typical that they stay. And it's sometimes hard to really understand how does that happen. But I, you know, I think you're an example of somebody who you, it sounds like you were very strong headed. I was, and I know now uh, I have a uh, calling to uh, do ministry myself and um, I'm going to start doing YouTube uh, tapes uh, for ministry with a pastor friend of mine so I can jumpstart my own ministry. And it, my ministry will be called um, Healed People, Heal People. I love that. That is so true. Maybe you should do a podcast. That might be a good idea. I think you should do a podcast. Well, that might be a good idea. You can come to the next PodFest Expo with me. Okay, that's a deal. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll call you when it comes time. Okay, so you went to college and then it came time to move on to law school. Yes, I ended up at Stetson University in St. Petersburg, Florida, because one of the professors at Stetson is from New Jersey. Professor Darthea Bean came to uh, Drew uh, my junior year, and she recruited and spoke to about 10 of us who she knew wanted to go to law school. And some of us applied and ended up two of us went myself and Landy Ortiz, and we roomed together our first year. So what was law school like for you? Hell. Hated it. I was just going to ask you, did you love it or hate it? Because I find that it's one or the other. Yeah. And so you just answered that question unequivocally. I was ready to go home when you, when you start. We started in August. I was ready to go home by October. One day the tor torts professor said, listen, if you can't hack it, there are seven other people who want to sit in your seat. Get the hell out. I went back to my room. I had a breakdown in the closet. And I called my mother and said, Ma, I can't do it. I can't take it no more. She said, we rented your room out. Click. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got your answer. She didn't mince any words there. <laughs> what, what did you hate about it? It was, I think, the grueling nature of having to read 1700 pages each night <laughs> yeah and then seven you know 1700 pages that you didn't necessarily understand exactly. what was even going on exactly and then it was the you know getting into class and for the first i'm going to say for the first semester it was about the first semester into half of the second semester first year i didn't get socratic method Oh, you're lucky. You lucked out. I didn't understand it. I didn't, oh, you didn't get it. I, I thought you meant it. they didn't do it. No, I didn't get it. And I had, for my contract class, Cal Kunzel. I don't know if you know, but Cal Kunzel helped to write the Uniform Commercial Code. He is a Southerner. 
<laughs> Lucky and you. he is everybody knows Cal Consul around the United States and he knows contracts like the back of his hand so it wasn't until the second semester I'm sitting in class and he asked this question he said hey anybody in here know blah, 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 you know and with his accent all of a sudden I put up my hand I go ooh 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 ooh, ooh. And he said, Miss Jackson, what's the answer? I said, substantial compliance. And I knew. He knew, and I knew. I clicked. <laughs> was that it, though? And that was it. The- I got it. I understood Socratic method. I finally got it. You know what I mean? When when I was, and I knew that time it clicked. And he laughed because he knew, too. You know what I mean? That I understood what they were doing and how they were trying to train us to think at that point. So it took a semester and almost a half before that happened. But it did. Well, some people, I think, took longer. Sometimes I wonder if, you know, certain people ever learned it. (laughs) But, okay, so Socratic method. Was there a time when you really did seriously consider dropping out? I think after the first year, I didn't. I mean, it was like that first semester was probably the toughest. At the end of it, we took, uh, we had a take-home exam for torts. I had a computer. Drew gives every student a computer. Wow. When you start your freshman year. So I brought my computer with me and I lost my tort exam. My computer broke down. Oh, no. And I had to bring it to our IT person who who recreated. Let's say my tort exam was seven pages. He recreated four and a half. So it better than nothing. Exactly. So I was like going nuts. You know, it was crazy. And. The first semester, I think, was the hardest. I mean, once I got through that first semester and then through the second, once it clicked, I said, okay, you know, I could probably get through this. But, you know, second year was hard as hell. We had four classes, four credits each, and we took evidence, tax, constitutional law, and there was one other class we took, crim law, and they killed us that first semester, second year. Constitutional law alone, I was reading like 25, you know, 30 cases a night. And I would say, "Um, Professor, can we could we tone it down? Can you simmer simmer it down, please? Did you actually say that? Yes. Everybody in class was like, oh, I wonder if he's going to listen to her. Did he? No, of course not. Well, there's that saying the first year they scare you to death. The second year they work you to death and the third year they bore you to death. Have you heard that? Yes, it's absolutely true. Well, I was four years because I was a part-time night student. And the fourth year was definitely torture. You were ready to be done absolutely by the fourth year. So it sounds like at some point you eased into things. Was there a time you started to like it or were you just ready to get out of there? I I wanted to get I just wanted to get out because I was tired of going to school. I think at, at by the third year, you know, you've been in college for four years. Now I just I lost my eyesight my second year. My eyesight no longer was twenty twenty. That's why I'm wearing these glasses. I've been trying to think of a cause of action to sue the law school ever since that happened. You know, I just was tired of the rigmarole of the you know the study and the one test you take or else you fail. Yeah. You know, people smoking crack during exam time. You know what I mean? Kind yes. of thing. And of course, you know, I could. I had a friend who was that person who had a, uh, a photographic memory friend that you hate because they don't come to class and they read the horn book and and throw off the curve and at Stetson we had a C curve so it was even harder for us you know uh, to get a B so if the person got an A really got an A but there was one time where I actually had to threaten the number one person in the class to only answer the questions that are asked and do not put any more answers into the into the questions because you're going to throw the curve off and all of us need to get a job damn it sounds like you were very practical (laughs) you were working deals long before everybody else was onto that 
Yeah, that's that's why you're such a good lawyer now. <laughs> Did you know what kind of law you wanted to do? Partly, I knew that I wanted to um, I wanted to help people, I wanted to make a difference. I knew that um, racism had always been something that I felt very strongly about. Um, I knew that sexism was always something I felt very strongly about. Um, I also felt like being a prosecutor was something I wanted to do because I wanted to try cases. And, you know, I saw myself as this big time trial lawyer who had all this, you know, influence one day. Like Perry Mason. Exactly. You know, so that's that's where I was kind of thinking about going and, and, and doing, you know. So what actually happened? Um, what actually happens when I graduated, I had a clerkship. Uh, with three criminal judges in Monmouth County. So I clerked. That was the year when they were doing two clerks to every three. So my main judge was Judge Lebrecht. God rest his soul. He passed away. And I also clerked for Judge Hull and Judge Farron. Farron retired. I think Judge Hull passed away as well. Um, And so most of the time I was with Judge Lebrecht, but then I would take overflow work because there was a clerk upstairs who did both of them. So they tried to balance her workout with me. But my judge, unfortunately, had like the most criminal cases. So I was over. He was like working for two judges. So he got a lot of the murder trials. You know, I had murder trials. I had you name it. You know, with criminal, you got PTI motions. You have motions to suppress. You have um, change, change custody motions. You have motions, municipal appeals. You have, I mean, everything. We had everything. We had pleas because he had like three or four uh, murder cases. So they would come up. You know, and somebody would like try to get out of their plea. So these are the kind of cases, you know, he had. I mean, so what did you do then out of your clerkship? Did you love criminal? Did you want to go right into that? Yes. Out of my clerkship, I went to Hudson County Prosecutor's Office for a few months because I was getting a job at Ocean. But the new prosecutor just started and he had to fire people. You know how that goes. Yeah. Um, So I knew that I had a place. So I went to I ended up leaving Hudson, going to Ocean. And I was there for about two or three years as an assistant prosecutor. And then I left there and went to the city of Newark. I was an assistant court counsel for about two or three years. So what was your experience like at the prosecutor's office? It was it was okay. I mean, I was the first black woman prosecutor in Ocean County in 150 years. I do not think they've ever hired anyone else to replace me in that. So yeah, I think it's that's that impressive. Was, that was me and that's it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was okay. I can't say, you know, there were some issues I had with like a judge or two that I appeared before who was difficult. And I felt like Prosecutor Millard should have went over and stuck up for me, you know, kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I had Prosecutor Millard, Terry Farley was the first assistant, and Craig Sackowitz was an executive. And these two guys are very well versed, very well known in the criminal field. Um, they've been around for many, many, many years. So it was, it was an honor to be able to say I was at the prosecutor's office to learn from such experienced uh, prosecutors and such experienced lawyers in the criminal field. Um, so they supported me. I did everything except for trial teams. I was in grand jury. I was in juvenile. I went to appellate. Um, I did, a, you know, domestic violence. So I did a lot of different units. Um, but I was pushing to be on trial team. And one of the reasons I left is because I wanted trials, you know, and they weren't trying to put me on trial team at that point. And I was there for two and a half, three years. So I said, I'm going to the city of Newark because there, you know, it doesn't, you know, everybody gets trials. And that's when I started doing labor and employment. 
Um, That's work. interesting. I've always my perception of working for the prosecutor's office is that you get thrown into court immediately. You do. But in the context of jury trials, I was in juvenile. I was in domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of bench trials and motions and everything. And their whole thing was, you know, trying to prepare me. But there were other people who would come into office with less experience than me and they put them right on trial team. Why? Mm, good that's old, interesting good old boy network you know yeah. oh my dad was a you know lawyer you know or so so i was just like listen i'm not this is not going to go down this way you know what i mean it's like i'm not you know i want to learn how to do x you know and so when i left i left for that reason you know i felt like i wasn't going to get what i needed and as a young attorney you got to get out there and do your thing and nork was good to me in that i was able to practice law i mean i was in every court <laughs> I went from no courts to every court in every form you can think of. Yeah, so tell me about the transition to Newark. What was that position? That was an assistant corporation counsel. So I was in the labor department, and we it was like four or five of us that came in at the same time. Newark was having problems because there were no attorneys in that in that unit probably for a good six months or so. So the, they were losing cases. Judges were dismissing. It was horrible. We had to clean it up. All of us had like 400 cases each that we had to run all over. It took us about a good six months to kind of get everything under control. And was the city of Newark your client? Um, yes, because we worked for the law department for the city. So what kind of juicy cases did you get to work on that you can talk uh, about? Yeah, we got... I did everything. We were in, you know, Office of Administrative Law on appeals. Um, a lot of employees would appeal, discipline. So one case I had one time was uh, the police surgeon um, because the police department had their own doctor, right? Because police officers sometimes have to go to the state doctor or the or the or your job. And so this police surgeon would show up at work. They're supposed to be there at 830 or 9. He comes at 10 and leaves at 2 every day. Not bad hours. Right. So um, Santiago fired him because, you know, he wasn't working. And so that's a case um, that I had. I had another case uh, where we gave someone a three-day suspension. It was another police officer who had hollow-point bullets in his off-duty gun, which was not. You couldn't do that. And he used that gun to uh, stop a robbery. There was a robbery going on, and the robbers jumped into a van, so he shoots. Okay, he stops them from going, but you can't have hollow-point bullets. So he appealed. It was like a six-day, let's say it was a six-day suspension. I think it went down to a four-day or something like that. Um, and it was interesting because I was working with um, uh, the police director at the time was Joe Santiago, who was a very colorful uh, police director. But I can say one thing about Santiago. He was the best witness you ever want to have. You could prep him for two minutes, and then he went on a stand. He knew exactly what you were going to ask before you even asked it, and he was able to give testimony that always would save the case, you know, that always made the judge or the hearing officer or whoever understand why he did what he did. You know, so what was the officer's excuse for the hollow points? I don't know if he necessarily gave an excuse. I think what he didn't want was any time off for it. You know what I mean? His thing was, hey, I saved people. You know what I'm saying? Like he didn't get that. No, but you can't do a hollow point because hollow points are banned for a reason. You know what I'm saying? And with yeah. officers, it's hard sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. they think, OK, well, I, I did this. So why am I getting hit for that? You know, um, I had cases in federal court. I had cases in superior court. Um, we had uh, internal discipline cases. I had police training commission. There was so much I did there. It was just, it was a lot. So in the landscape since then, because what year was this? That was probably 97 to around 2000. So it's been a little while. 
And there's been so much in the news since then about police corruption and racial profiling. Was that something that was talked about at that time? No, I went to... um yeah, I mean, I think I didn't deal with too many profiling cases when I was in Newark. We dealt with other types of discipline because Newark has a trial board because there are 1,000 cops. I don't know if you know, but Newark has 1,000 police officers. And and so you have to have a trial board that's been established to hear disciplinary cases two or three times a month um, because it's that many officers. And so... I didn't really bump into the racial profiling until I went to the attorney general's office and I started as a DAG in the Office of State Police Affairs, which was the office that enforced the racial profiling consent decree, as well as prosecuted state troopers on violations of their SOPs. So when you left the city of Newark, you went straight to the AG's office? Yes, and I was a DAG in Mm -hmm. state police affairs. Why did you leave? Because um, I spoke with Peter Harvey, and he said there may be an opportunity there, and we talked about it, and it, it, it happened. You know, job was offered a job, and I said, why not? You know what I mean? It's something I would love to be a DAG. You know, I've always wanted to work in the justice complex, you know. So I said, let me take this opportunity, and I was there, I want to say, five years. I became acting director of the unit. So tell me what you were doing there. Um, we had... At first, I was prosecuting troopers on the violations of their standard operating procedures. So we were over internal affairs. Um, our unit enforced the consent decree, and the consent decree had different sections. One section had to do with MAPS, which is a system that was integrated into the state police, which tracks what all the troopers are doing. So if they stop a, a black person, they stop a woman, whoever, do we know when they stop them, the race of the person, da, 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 all they enter. So we monitored that system. We monitored their discipline to make sure, you know what I'm saying, that they weren't profiling. And then we prosecuted them on any violation. Okay. And so we worked with internal affairs. Um, we conducted our own investigations. Sometimes um, the investigations would lead to some kind of racial profiling. We had investigators in our unit who would investigate. We would also ensure that w- between MAPS, there's another section that dealt with training because the consent decree required certain training to be interwoven. So we helped to make sure that was done. We were what you would call the internal monitors of the state police. So every component of the consent decree, we would ensure, was working towards completion of what was expected. We also interfaced with the federal monitors who would come in periodically to make sure that the state police were doing what the consent decree said, because that decree was entered into with the United States of America, so they wouldn't sue. Sort of like an audit. Exactly. So when it was an agreement, either you do this consent decree or we'll sue you. So how would these violations, or whatever you would call them, how would they come to your attention? Who would report them? The public reported troopers, you know, on a regular basis. You know, oh, you stop, you know, this, or their superiors. So you worked very closely with that. And and like I said, it's something that's still in the news. I feel like it's died down now because everybody's talking about coronavirus or, you know, various other things like politics that we don't want to get into right now. So what was your overall impression of the way that racial profiling was handled while you were there? Um, I think that we did a good job in prosecuting the troopers that we knew. Um, I think that, and, and I said this, I did a lot of training at the city of Newark, but 
I think back in 1991 and 92, when this started, um, you had a very different state police at that time than you have now. Um, I think the consent decree was positive in the fact that it has affected troopers in, in numerous ways that make them the best law enforcement that they can be. And that's what the purpose was. It wasn't, it, yes, it came about due to negative consequences, right? It came about because they were stopping blacks and Hispanics, you know, on a highway just because they're black and Hispanic. But I think the outcome now is a better, you know, more efficient police force. Now, has it rid racism and, you know what I mean? Of course not. No, no, no police department, no place in the world, yeah. <laughs> let me say that, is, is, is subject to just zero racism. You know what I mean? Yeah. Someone may be intolerant and we can't help that. But what we do have in place are mechanisms and laws and rules in order to deal with someone who acts on those things for the purpose. It is illegal for a law enforcement officer to stop anybody based on race. It is actually a crime now. And I've had to teach people that um, Peter Harvey, um, they put through uh, while he was general a crime. It's, it actually is a criminal violation to uh, as a for a law enforcement officer to do anything with regards to people based on race outside of bias, outside of a, like a bias crime is for anyone. But it's, there's an actual 2C criminal violation for law enforcement to do that. And it could be a second-degree crime if you end up, you know, hurting someone or whatever based on race. So I think it's different. And, I, and like I said, and, and I used to train North cops, and I would say, you know, at the beginning of this, no trooper wanted cameras in their cars. Now yeah. troopers won't get in a car without a camera working. And I asked, I asked cops that I trained, why do you think that's so? Because they see that it helps them. When people lie and say, oh, well, you punched me in the face or you did this. No, roll the bean footage. You see, I came out and said this and you started kicking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, I mean, in more instances than not, the cameras and the changes, body cameras and the training and all of these things that are implemented have helped them. And they realize that now. So when you hear these things in the news, uh, just generally about police corruption and racial profiling do you think that it's overstated in the media no i don't think it's overstated i think it's unfortunate um uh because of the type of job that officers do i think it's everywhere i don't think it's just law enforcement and i think i feel bad for the officers who want to do their job and go home because of three people or four people who may have called someone the n-word and said they're going to stop someone now the whole law enforcement has to be painted as you know what i mean yeah. it just doesn't make sense and it's not it's unfair you know what i mean for the guys and girls who really are doing their job to do their job um but i don't think it's overstated i think that there is corruption i think that there are people who who do things to others based on race based on sex or e other illegal reasons and they need to be dealt with i think honestly that if the tenements and or the uh the programs, the training, everything that we did in consent decrees that's being done with big departments like NORC and, you know, other departments around the country, that should just be standard. To me, the United States Attorney General needs to say, listen, all uh, law enforcement has to have 60 hours of training. You know what I mean? To me, I think the problems would lessen the more training you had. I think the issue is if I'm in Podunk, I don't have opportunities to pull out my gun that much. 
And so if I'm not simulating, you know what I'm saying? What's going to happen? I'm going to end up shooting someone I shouldn't shoot because I'm not quick enough. I'm not in that environment where I can do it. There's no muscle memory. Exactly. And I'm thinking, you know, let's let putting race aside. Now bring race into it. I'm more afraid of the black person. You know what I mean? Than I am of the white guy, you know, but the white guy might have the gun and the black person doesn't. I end up shooting a black person because of my fears. So sensitivity training helps, you know what I'm saying? Use of force training helps. 60 hours of this stuff every year everyone should have to do i'm glad to hear you say that because i was going to ask you well how does the training work because if you do have somebody who's racist right how do you train them out of that? But it sounds like that's not really what you're saying. You can't right. train them you out of that. You can't train them. What what I say, and, and I've taught that, listen, if you don't like black people, you don't like black people. But you better not show that while you're at work because we'll have behavior modification, which may mean you lose your job. Because it's illegal to do things to people based on race. You as a law enforcement officer can't stop a person based on race, but you can stop them for speeding. Yeah. And if you can stick to that, regardless of what your beliefs are, you won't be charged and you won't have problems. Try to do your job and leave your beliefs at home. I can't come in here every day and praise Jesus. That's not appropriate at work. (laughs) You're supposed to be talking about work. I can't, you know, Rodriguez can't speak Spanish because at work the, the language is English, right? So why can you come in here and express that you don't like black people? You can't do that because we have a job to do, and that includes protecting black people because of the job that you do. So you can't come in here and express it. So if you do not like them, don't show that here because if you do, you lose your job because it's illegal. But how do you know sometimes what motivates somebody? Like what if someone wasn't really speeding? Like what if they say that I wasn't speeding? Right. I just happened to be black, so he pulled me over. They can say that, but they have to prove it. And that's what's well, that's what the issue is when it comes to race cases, any type, to show intent of what people are doing it for. If you're doing it, if we look with state troopers, he pulled me over because I was black, not because I was speeding. All right, let's roll the bean footage. We got a video we can look at. We can look at the officer's history. We got a map system where we can pull for the last six months. Who has he been pulling over? We can see where he's at. Are there more black people in that area than white? I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff you're going to look at to see, is that person telling the truth? Has he stopped this person before? Is this person a frequent flyer? It's, I mean, yeah. there's all these questions. So at the end of assessing that, you may say, you know what? Officer Jones has been pulling over a lot of black people and he's not in an area where it's like that. You know what I'm saying? And he has made a couple of comments has been off colored and he has a history. You see what I'm saying? Yes, of having issues with people. There's a pattern there. So maybe this person may be right. When I looked at the video, didn't seem like that person was speeding. He didn't run through a red light. He had no problems with his lights. There was no real reason to pull him over at that time. That shows maybe it was based on something. Illegal. Would you say that more often than not when you would have to investigate things like that that it was not warranted that there wasn't racial profiling sometimes there was not um we couldn't prove it um and i wouldn't say i would say every case is different sometimes maybe there wasn't sometimes there was but we can't prove it you know so it's not always that there's not but you know how it goes in the, in the law field. You have to have evidence yeah. to show something, you know. Now, so it's like trying to prove rape. 
Exactly. So it's right. It's like, okay, you know, but if we, we know our troopers, we knew, you know, who the frequent flyers were and who had the problems, you know, and a lot of the troopers, I have to say, you know, they don't have those issues so much anymore. I mean, there are, there were like three, 4,000 troopers. They're not going to run around just stopping black people, even though they may not like black people and they may go home and use racial slurs and they don't want to have anything to do with them. But when they come to work, don't, I don't think they're crazy enough to act in those ways overtly, you know, and they still have problems. I mean, there's still yeah. people in every law enforcement mm-hmm. who who have their biases and sometimes let that seep through. And if they're caught and if they're charged, they may lose their job over it. You know, not everybody's perfect, but that's in every profession. You yes. know, it's not yes, just law enforcement. Do you think that maybe because we live in an area that's a, a little more urban, a little more progressive, that perhaps we don't see that as it's not as problematic here. Not that it's not, it doesn't come up, but it's not as problematic as like what you said, you know, some little dinky podunk town in the Midwest. Right. You know, I think that there's something to be said for living in the Northeast and that it's very progressive and we're in New York is the capital of the world. You know what yeah. I mean? We're right next to, and it's a melting pot. And I do think that that makes probably a difference in the number of instances for anyone to kind of do things, but it still happens. Yes. You know, um, I have heard, I have a case right now where um, a, a student had made some comments and the black people that I represent, you know, it was hard for them to accept the fact that this student was racist. And I had to explain to them, I know what you're going through because you don't expect people to just basically come out and be racist in your face, especially in the Northeast. If I'm in Arkansas, if someone calls me a nigger in Arkansas, I'm in Arkansas. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm in Alabama. Which is unfortunate. Exactly. It's still unfortunate, but I mean, if you're down South, there's still that kind of separation in some places. But up here, when you see racism and you hear racism, it's even hard for you to to, to kind of even fathom. And that happened to me, you know, in law school, I remember a group of us went to Publix. It was like five black girls. We went to Publix and we were getting some food and we standing in line. And one of us, one of the girls I was with, she asked this Caucasian woman in front of us, can you tell me what time it is? Because none of us had on our watches. She asked her three times. And then the lady turns around and says, I don't speak to niggers. That's incredible. I can't even believe that. This was my second year of law school down in Florida in St. Petersburg. Now, this girl that she said it to is a black girl, but she's light skinned. Her mom's white. Her father's black. She lost her mind. She didn't know what to do. She was saying, why would you call me that? She started crying. The rest of us kicked her ass, but we're not going to talk about how. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear that story. (laughs) We went off, you know, on this lady because it was so when it happens to you in that way and you're and especially when you're educated, you know what I mean? And and, and it's in your face. Everyone reacts differently. You know what I mean? To racism. Everybody reacts differently. You're like, I can't believe it. It hurts. At the same time, Mm -hmm. you're angry had to say what am I doing wrong it's like you want to please you want to stop it but you can't do you got to recognize it when you see it even though it shocks you and surprises you and you can't correct that woman you know you're never going to change her mind exactly right so it's unfortunate that that happened and I wanted to ask you as an African-American woman because I talk a lot with my guests just about being women right you know sometimes it feels like we have to work a little bit harder 
have you felt that as a person of color? Oh, most and definitely. a woman. Yes, I mean we always have to do more. I mean it's it's never, it is never. I've never thought that I didn't have to give a hundred and fifty percent, no matter where I worked, no matter what I did in court. You know what I mean? It's just it's always different for us. The experience is different. Do you feel like is it something that is just always sort of in the back of your mind? Um, yes. Um, I put forth the best you know, presentation that I can do. Um, but you know, I mean, when you go to court sometimes and the guys are talking, Hey, did you see that, you know, thing last night? Oh yeah. The giants, they were good. You know, like the rapport, the relationship, the, you know, I went to OAL recently with a client and, um, I hate to say this, but I'm not going to say who it was, but I had a settlement conference and I thought that this judge was going to pull out the grand wizard cape from underneath the desk. Okay. Because everything I said, he didn't even really look at me. He could care less. The, the lawyer, the white lawyer on the other side, he was, Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I saw what you mean about this. And I said, saw what you mean about what the racial discrimination and disability discrimination. And when I'm arguing this lawyer next to me had the nerve to tell me, Oh, you're loud. You're yelling. I said, excuse me, I'm arguing my case. And when I get to the part about discrimination, you want to say I'm yelling. I will continue to talk at this level because I'm presenting for my client the discrimination. Stop taking it personally. Next. Yeah, right. Stop taking it personally. Well, I love I love your style. I love <laughs> that you speak up for yourself and everybody else. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, and, I, you know, I experience that sometimes as a woman. I'll think to myself, hmm, you know, something's different. I just feel like mm-hmm. I'm being treated differently. And then I think, well, maybe it's just my imagination. Maybe it's something else. You know, maybe it's not because I'm a woman. Maybe it's, you know, some other reason that really has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you never really know, right? Right. So, so I think you're dealing with a double whammy. Yes, it is double, and you and you do feel like okay, well, because I'm black, they think X. You know what I'm saying? Because of a woman, they think Y. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and you deal with it not only with uh, courts and your adversaries, but you deal with it with your clients too. Do you feel like it's worse or better? Do you see any difference with different generations? Like you know, I call them the dinosaurs, like the old fart white guys. Or the younger generation, millennials. Do you see any difference in general? I think that the difference is like, and and it's, I see a difference in how they treat. And then sometimes I have to say, well, look at where they came from. I remember one time, oh, this had to be like 10 years ago or something. I was at a function and there was an 80 year old, he had to be 80, 82, he said he was, white man. He was a lawyer and he had retired. And me, him and somebody else were talking. And he starts talking. He goes, da, 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 da. Yeah, and those color people were saying to me. When was this? What year? Oh, this was like 10 years ago. And I was just like, and he kept talking. Now, I realize that was his, he's 82. So this is his, this is his experience. That's his life. He's used to saying color people. He's not politically correct to say African-Americans are minorities. You know what I mean? Or, 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 or Spanish. He's used to saying colored. Now, is he a racist? You know what I mean? Because he said color? I don't know. But I know he's insensitive and he's not politically correct. That's all I can say at this point. Yeah. Did it make me feel uncomfortable? Of course. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I, and I kind of didn't say anything to him because I felt 
that's who he is. I can't change someone who's 82 years old. Yeah. He knows better. He's an attorney for crying out loud. He's still living. He, he must watch television. Exactly. You're watching TV and seeing the movie. So sometimes you got to recognize, you know, where people come from and where, where they're going, you know, and you yeah. can't fight. You got to pick and choose your battles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so when you left the AG's office, did you f- leave feeling like, you know, I did good work there? Yes, I did. Um, I went to corrections um, after that. Um, it was tough. I mean, that was a tough position. The corrections position? The position with the AG's office. When I was acting director, it was tough because I had to testify. Um, you're on a hot seat every day. You know, Stu Rabner was AG while I was acting director and you was know he a good boss he was good I mean he he had said I guess you can't say <laughs> yeah. oh he he was horrible I can edit that part <laughs> out exactly no no I thought he was good I mean I didn't have a lot of interaction with him um I did get to speak to him one time because um something was put in the newspaper that was incorrect about testimony I had done and you know he realized and told me that I did probably the toughest job in the AG's office by being the monitor for the state police. And I think that um, all the AGs that I worked for, because I worked through five, Samson, I worked when Harvey was there, Salima Farber was there. So um, I left right before Ann Milgram became some whatever. I went to the um, Department of Corrections. Um, But it was a difficult thing, but I did a good job, and I did the job on behalf of the people. I have to say that nobody um, could influence me, even though they tried. Um, I was not scared of, um, you know, any kind of political uh, fallout. I was not afraid of the state police, the unions, and all the things that they will try to do to you in order for you to do what they want to do <laughs> you to do. Um, and I, I did it on behalf of the people for the people because I believed in what I was doing. And it wasn't necessarily against the state police. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was there to balance all of that. And I feel I did a great job. I wasn't, I'm not against law enforcement. I'm not against troopers. You know what I mean? I'm for the law and I'm for equality and I'm for it no racism amen (laughs) (laughs) so you went from um I'm just getting a little fuzzy on the title so you were still at the AG's office but you went from I went from the attorney general's office to the department of corrections so I switched departments there's about 12 to 14 state departments um, the AG handles all, represents everybody, just like with the federal government. The U.S. Attorney's Office represents everyone in federal government. So I went over to corrections. I was an assistant director in operations. And at that point, I was running the construction unit, and I was the ADA coordinator. So I worked in operations. There are 12 prisons. Um, we have 20,000 inmates. I was over every building project that happened at every prison. So anything that ha- went down with the Department of uh, like Community affairs permits environmental issues i took care of all of that so you were kind of running a business yeah i had seven people reporting to me um, who worked in this unit then i was the ada coordinator because uh the commissioner Heyman at the time created an ada coordinator position because everybody needed one so i took in all the complaints from staff as well as inmates regarding any disability issues it sounds like you had two jobs i did which one did you like better (laughs) i know right i you know they both were okay you know i managed to you know to kind of balance them out um running a unit being a manager is not easy 
You know, no. I was a manager in the AG's office. I mean, it's it's just not an easy job. You know, it's not something you run to. Managing employees is tough. It's just a tough job. It's my least favorite thing to do. Yes. So I, I don't want to go too far ahead. I was going to ask you if you're managing people. Now, you've done so much. Yes. So then how long were you there? Corrections. Corrections, I was there, I'm going to say, when I started, 2000, was it seven, 2005? Maybe it was 2006 or seven, and then I left, and then I went to Wilentz for two years. So you left the government. And I went to Wilentz. So what made you make that jump? Always wanted to work at a big firm. Always wanted to put that on my resume. Wanted to see what the experience was like. Because it took you a while to get there. 11 years. That had to be a little bit of a culture shock. It was very much a culture shock. They had to deal with the bill hours. Monster. And I think you do have to bill even when you work for AG's office, but it's a little different. Well, no. Nine to five. You didn't have to bill at all? No billing. Okay. No. It was that that billable hour was a monster. Was that the biggest transition, you think? It was. um, Seven days a week, you know, trying to work and make sure you have the hourly time. It was a killer for me. Did you ever run into something that happens a lot when people make that transition sort of underbilling, you know, kind of feeling, almost feeling bad that you're charging somebody, you know, that much for something? Never felt that way. Okay. Um, always <laughs> felt like, um, I hope I can get it in and knowing something. Make your billing. Exactly. Like knowing, okay, there's no way that everybody's getting eight hours every day. There's no way. You have to work, you know, 10 to 12 hours to make yeah. the eight. Yeah. So it's like, but with Lynch, you know, as with big firms, there were constant referrals coming in, constantly people. So we constantly had things assigned. You know what I mean? Um, there were a few downtimes, you know. Um, I would get work done, you know, interrogatories, document production requests. Um, there was one partner, and then there became three because two partners came, um, Beth and um, Joe Joseph. Beth and, and Joseph, I think it was. And they gave me work, too, so I was able to manage. But... It was it was a struggle. That billable hour was a bear, and that was one of the reasons why I was like, okay, I'm I'm out. Because I how just, long were you there? Two years. I was yeah. there for two years. Well, it's long enough to have gotten some experience. Oh, definitely. What area of law were you doing? Employment. Okay. Mainly plaintiffs work. So, and I enjoyed. I mean, I to till this day. I mean, I enjoy all the partners at Willens. Everybody works there. A lot of them are long term. That's one of the few big firms where people are partners. And it's like a family there. Like, they've been there forever. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that, um, you know, I have to say a lot of the guys that were very good to me, um, you know, they wanted me to come to their departments. You know, people were trying to say, don't go, you know, like, try to stay. But I just, you know, it was just being burnt out. And I was honest, you know, with management that, you know, I have 11 years in. I was used to having a life. And here you don't have a life. You know, it's like you're just constantly working. It has nothing to do with the people here. You yeah. know what I mean? I love the partners. I love being able to be on a phone with a client and be like, Oh, what? Someone got locked up? Let me call someone. So, oh, you need a closing? Let me call blah, blah. You know what I mean? Oh, you yeah. need this? Let me call that. I love that. I love the atmosphere of the firm. Um, the old heads, I used to call them the managing partners, you know, and, and dealing with the interns in the summer and, you know, the culture of it in that sense, I really enjoyed, you know. And till this day, when I see people from Alent, you know, I have much love for them. Um, but I just. I just wasn't can't. your jam. It wasn't. So you went from basically working nine to five yep. to working crazy big law hours. Yes. Yeah. I'm surprised you lasted two years. Seven seven days a week. Yeah. That, 
seven days a week. Yeah, I, most, I most, don't most. honestly, I don't know how you lasted two years. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge shift. Right. So then you started thinking like the second week, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and then did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? I know. Right. I mean, I went, I ended up going back to corrections in 2009. Um, because, right after Wilentz. Yep. Um, the commissioner had told me when I left, you know, there's always a place here you know for you so did you make the call so i made the call mm. and i went back i was a, the uh assistant director to the uh regulatory and what is it called legal regulatory <clears throat> unit that had litigation myself um we had uh pol policy like legislation and then we had um one other person who I forgot what she works on, but basically all kind of regulatory and legal stuff. Um, I came in as assistant. There was a director. Her name was Karen. And so it was her and I running a unit where we had like four people. Did you like it? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was something I knew. I understood corrections. You know, I had spent at least a year there, you know, prior to um, the people who worked for us were pretty cool. You know, we had some issues, um, but for the most part, I knew what I was doing and kind of I kind of became a closer and a fixer so even though I wasn't in construction anymore I didn't do the environmental stuff the commissioner would still call upon me to help with other issues that weren't even related to what I was doing like can you help us with this fine that we got or can you help us can you prosecute they had me prosecuting um, uh, employees would appeal and so I would be the prosecutor on behalf of the correction so they use me in a lot of different capacities that's what happens when you're good Right. They ask you to start, yes. they start asking you to do everything. Yes. So what would you say was different about overseeing state police activities and then corrections? Because they are both law enforcement, right. but it's, they're very different what they do. Yeah. I mean, with corrections, I didn't have a lot of contact with the officers. Sometimes I would get involved in some internal affairs stuff, um, but only when it would deal with disability issues. Um, unless I was assigned, you know what I mean, to get involved with an internal affairs matter or to help, you know what I mean, with an investigation. Um, so I think what happened was I I don't know if you can even compare them. I think they're apples to oranges in a sense of what they do. Um, I have an affinity, you know, for law, uh, for law enforcement in the corrections industry. Um, I have spoken to many law enforcement officers uh, or corrections officers about this because I feel that out of all the law enforcement jobs, all of them are tough and all of them have to do with saving lives. You know what I mean? And you're dealing with very difficult people who are mentally ill sometimes as criminals. Mm -hmm. But I think corrections out of all of them has the toughest job. And I and I my hat goes off to those officers um, because a lot of them end up, you know, committing suicide and and, you know, and end up corrupt you know, corrupted. And I believe that that's because there's mental issues that corrections officers need to be better prepared to deal with the psyche of criminals. And I think they're not. I think that if I were attorney general of the United States for a day, I would create uh, uh, a law or, or guidance that every corrections officer must go through mental health you know three or four times a year they have to be checked out and the reason i would do that is because i feel that with corrections 
you're a normal everyday person you're married you don't have the intent to break the law you're not someone who's every day trying to think about how to get away with stuff because you're not sick but when you're around psychotic people who have you know who are serial killers and murderers and who have even even lesser psychological issues but because they're locked up have become you know what i mean how do you separate the two yeah and how do you leave how do you do that all day and exactly. then leave and go outside exactly. and, and shift. some of them can but some of them are weak minded because if you're doing this for a long period of time inmates have nothing to do all day but to figure out how can i manipulate that officer to get that cell phone in how can yeah. i manipulate that officer they have people on the outside find out what his problems are <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Find out what's going on. And it's serious. You know, and who wants to tell anything, right? Because they want to do their job. They don't want to get in trouble, you know? So, I mean, it's a, to me, it's a very difficult job. And if you're weak-minded, you know, and you're going in, going in, going in, and someone gets, gets at you and gets to you and they wear you down, you know, what happens? You end up bringing that cell phone in. Someone finds out. Yeah. It seems like they all almost become a little institutionalized the same way that the criminals are. Exactly. Because and there's a, there's a difference. To me, you have to have a little bit of institutional. You know what I mean? You have to have a little bit of street smarts. You know, you should have some kind of constitution to be able to separate. And I think that only comes from having therapy, from making sure that you're not talking like them. Because what happens is when you're around these people long enough, their normal becomes your normal. Yes. Yes. And so then you start thinking and doing things in that way. And you're saying, why am I doing this? Because their normal becomes your normal. You're not locked up, but you are. You are because you're there all day. Exactly. And so my concern for corrections officers, I, I want to see more of them live. I want to see more of them get through 20 years without corruption. I want to see more of them do their jobs, you know what I'm saying, and be able to, to live their lives in an appropriate, proper manner without feeling threatened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Without feeling like they're going to lose their job if somebody tells something. You understand? Um, and I understand that there's a lot of horrible things that some corrections officers do. Just like with other law enforcement or racial profiling, corrections has a bad rap because some corrections officers do horrible things to inmates. I do not deny that that stuff goes on. And maybe who knows why they do it, you know what I'm saying, to to psychologically, you know what I mean, get the inmates in a place that we know there's more of you yeah. than us, but we're still in control. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason why they do it. But it's not right. And I don't necessarily agree, you know what I mean, yeah. with those tactics or tactics yeah. to, to psychologically or mind games. You know what I mean? These are already crazy people. And I get it. You may think if I don't act just as crazy as them, they're taking me over. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because even the state police or the other you know municipalities, they're on the road. Yes. They're out. You know, they're mingling with normal people. Right. It's even harder then, right, because you may be stopping someone, but that person may have just killed someone, and you don't know. At least with corrections, you know everybody on this row serial killers, so you don't have to guess. Yeah, you know what you're dealing with. <laughs> but, you know, also, when you're out on the road, you're, how, how long are your interactions with them? You know, you pull someone over, you have that interaction, and then it's done. Right. Well, I think that um, that's why it's even more important that law enforcement contact um, be 
what it needs to be for the encounter that they have. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's such thing as a bedside manner, right. Um, with, with police. Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. yell at someone if you don't, if you're not in a situation that you need to yell at because you may be the, make the difference. That's a complaint that person's going to file. You're in the middle directing traffic and you say, get the fuck over here. Yeah. Now that person's going right to internal affairs, took your badge number down. Yeah. Instead of you just saying, can you come on? Hey, do you have a problem, ma'am? Learn who yeah. you're talking. There was no reason to do that. You know, like, and if you stop someone, try to have it as pleasant. Let your situation tell you what you have to do. Don't be, think because you're a law enforcement officer, you could scream and yell and act crazy with whoever you're with. Yeah, I think communication is important in every aspect of life. Exactly. You could be working at Starbucks, right? Exactly. And that's kind of training that a consent decree brings yes. about. Yeah. Is kind of bedside manner, use of force, you know what I mean? How to talk to people, what to do if. Those are the kind of things that a lot of law enforcement officers are not getting. Bigger departments have them, right? Yeah. Like uh, New York has 33,000 police officers. You know, their training is going to be a little bit different than Podunk. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Town, yes. right? But all officers should be required. So like I said, if I was AG for the day, you know what I'm saying? Yes. I would have some of these things put for every law enforcement to have 60 hours of training, which would include, you know, um, use of force training, you know, how to communicate with people, you know what I mean? Racial sensitivity training dealing with females you know how to use i would have them in training simulating for six times a year i want them to go and shoot their gun at a simulation at least six times a year not once yeah yeah and that's true it would be more for people who have less interaction because those are ones i'm having issue obviously in in big cities like los angeles and 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 uh uh, Chicago and Baltimore and, and New York, where I got 33,000 cops, you know what I'm saying? It does make a difference to have that training. They're interacting with more people of color. They're talking to more people on average, you know? So why aren't, why don't you have a job where you're doing that? I know you're, you're right. I have actually thought about kind of going around the country, like creating training in the same way that, you know, they've been giving it, you know, in the consent decree. just found your new business. (laughs) And kind of, you know, helping officers to acclimate and making suggestions to, you know, state attorney generals to come together and require that, you know, corrections, you know, be uh, go to a a therapist or have three times a year where they have to have mental health checks. You know what I'm saying? I think you should do that. And things like that to try to encourage because I want officers to do the best job that they can. I'm not against law enforcement. I'm for law enforcement. And even the law enforcement officer will tell you most of them, I don't want the racist cop in my car with me you know what I'm saying yeah. like, they'll tell yeah. you I don't want the cop that has psychological problems with me I don't want the person who's out of shape with me yeah. how many corrections officers have said listen I wish there was a requirement in New Jersey for them to have physical fitness because if I'm on a tier with serial killers and I got Pillsbury Doughboy sitting yeah. next to me if there's a riot I'm dead Yeah. because what is he going to do Mm, you know so i mean there are officers too will tell you you know what i'm saying who you know why would i want to be with because that person if they're inclined to break the law based on race or break the law they're trying to put me in that 
and that's yeah. not who I am. Who I am, and this is not the majority of the force. Is there a wall of silence? Is there a blue wall? Is there a, a triangle? I mean, yeah, I think those things happen. Do corrections officers look out for each other when probably somebody should be telling on that person? Yeah, there are. But every once in a while, people. Uh, say enough is enough. And I've had that circumstance when I was in state police. Um, We, they charged this lieutenant. He was there for 20 years. He had swastikas in his locker. He would call uh, Indian people camel jockeys. He would use the word nigger on a regular basis. And everybody knew this lieutenant. He had been around. Even Rick Fuentes knew him very well. And he had been around for many years. And there were five troopers who, two were female, three males, who said enough was enough. And they were willing to testify against him in the Office of Administrative Law. His lawyer postponed the case at least three times, saying his baby fell. We won't talk about who that is because people who practice will know who I'm talking about. And I said, listen, you guys, I'm tired of going to court. He's stalling. And what I did was I went to the attorney general. I went to my boss at the time, the director. I went to Rick Fuentes, who was a superintendent and the chief of staff. I got everybody in line with a particular idea that I had. And I went to court and I said, okay, if we postpone every day that we are not here, he will lose one year of pension. He took a plea that day. We got him out. Wow. Because I was tired of him. And he was looking at me like he wanted to kill me. I said, come on, try it. But let me tell you, those troopers, they went through hell for wanting to testify against this man. They would go to work and they would tell me that their entire class would turn their back on them at roll call. They went to work and that they would get into their cars and their cars would have messages on them. And I asked him time and time again, give me the word and I will have every single one of those troopers suspended. Do they even know who it was sometimes? Sometimes they did. But they didn't want to go there. Yeah, that's got to be tough. And I had to like peer pressure. I had to admire them Mm -hmm. for being willing to stand up against the racism. And that's how when I teach cops, I say, sometimes you guys, enough has to be enough. Someone has to stand up and say something. You might lose your job. You might lose some friends. But if you want to continue to work in an environment where you have to watch someone call someone a nigger and have and swastikas in the locker, are you going to keep letting that happen? Is that okay? Yeah. So sometimes law enforcement, there is no blue wall. They want justice, and they just want to be treated right. Yeah, I agree with that. I've seen it. I know a lot of good ones. One in particular yes. that you've met. Yes. Thanks for sharing that. Yes. So it sounds like you should be retired at this point from all the work you have done. But where did you go after that? Um, After corrections, seven years, where did I go? I went to work for a short term with the city of Newark that did not um, last long with um, as with the Department of Public Safety. I was like an inside lawyer and I was helping them with their consent decree. I was also the police, how do you say, the um, hearing officer for all discipline for police and fire. And I did that for several months. And then I was stabbed in the back. Oh, what happened? <laughs> Politics. Mm. Uh, the person fired me. Uh, my mother died December 1st. He fired me December 31st. Oh, yeah, it happens, you know. And did you like that job? 
It was okay. Um, I, in my mind, I said, you know, let me come here and help them out because I just got finished, you know, running a state police one. So I kind of understood Peter Harvey was the monitor, you know, for Newark. And so Peter and I had worked together. He had told him she's great. You know, Rick knew me. So Rick told, you know, oh, Disha's good. She knows, you know, everything, how to do everything. But it, it became issues with the person I was working for. Okay. And so because of that, he basically stabbed me in the back. There's no other way to say it. And it's um, it was political. You know, um, there was there were problems there. Um, but I was a stand up person. You know what I mean? So I wasn't going to participate in any kind of nefarious activities. I actually knew what I was doing and I did not get my job because I slept with someone or because I gave a political contribution. You know, I actually knew what I was doing and I actually was there to help the Department of Public Safety, Law and Public Safety, and the citizens of the city of Newark with regard to making sure that the start of this consent decree was implemented in the right way. So you felt like you did good work when you left there. Yes, definitely. I did. I, I was very good at what I did. And also I was not, again, I am fearless. Um, the person who ran the department, a lot of people are scared of him, especially the officers. Um, he has a reputation. Um, but no, I wasn't. I told him what it was like it is. And I would not allow him to disrespect me either. I think you've been like that since you were eight. Oh, probably yes. Probably younger. Oh, you yes. You were probably born that way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then where did you land? I was on my own for a little while. And so you were, that's it. That's when it really happened. You were right. entrepreneur. I was on my own and I ended up getting a contract with Jersey City where I did like EEO investigations um, for about a year. I also had another contract with Hillside. I was a hearing officer in Hillside. Um, and so I helped them with some of their uh, cases there. And I had clients. Um, I did another stint somewhere else that was so brief, it's not even memorable, where I ran a division um, with 12 people reporting to me. And then that ended. Um, and then I've been on my own since last summer. I met you, I met you quite a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought you were solo then. I always had a practice since 2007. I've had a part-time practice. So what kind of work do you do now? If I wanted to send you a client or if any of my listeners wanted to send you a client, what would they send you? Um, I do a lot of uh, discrimination, employment matters, uh, people who've gotten terminated from their jobs, transfers, severance agreements. Um, If you want advice on, you know, uh, policies, you know, um, handbooks, um, you know, I've advised uh, managers, you know, things to do. I represent a lot of plaintiffs who have disability race, gender, age, those things. So I have cases uh, where I am getting ready to represent someone on a SEPA claim. Um, I have a case with retaliation, race. Um, I have another case, it's a sexual harassment, race, that I'm going to be in trial. So I'm going to have several trials that are going to probably not hit until next year unless they settle that I'm doing right now. I also dabble in personal injury. I've had several personal injury cases that I've settled. Um, in addition to that, I do medical malpractice. I'm interested in what you've done. I know you've done some things in the entertainment industry. Tell me about that, because I haven't heard that anywhere. Sure, yeah. I mean, I do have entertainment clients I've had over the years. I review a lot of agreements, um, distribution agreements. Um, I've helped to uh, negotiate, you know what I mean, some agreements. Um, and dealing with some people who are famous you know but in the entertainment industry outside of that i do my fashion week and my fashion week i've been doing now for nine years we're in our 10th season and that is based on my um 
charity and my charity's DL, DLJ Give to Live Community Foundation, and it's the Jersey City Fashion Week I've been doing in Jersey City. Yes, I've seen that. And uh, we give money away to different groups. Um, I usually have one, two, three, four days of shows, and we have a good time. And, you know, the I have young people who come every year. I've had um, people, and who knew this was going to be like this? This started as a suggestion from a friend, and it has grown into, you know, nine years of giving back, you know what I mean, to the community and um, bringing fashion, you know, to Jersey City and being able to touch young people's lives. You know, sometimes I bring in motivational speakers, you know, and I want to help the girls and guys build their self-esteem. And, you know, we've just done so many good things with the Fashion Week. And um, and I know that uh, I never imagined that it would be this long. And one of the young people who was with me, her mom had said, do you know, my daughter's been with you for the last seven years, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know, and sometimes I'll be in Jersey City and someone will come up to me and say, hi, Miss Jackson, I'm so-and-so, I was a makeup artist back in 2013, and I'm like, oh my God. Isn't you that know? nice? Yes, and she, I just want to let you know I'm doing okay, you know, because I, I can't meet everyone, you know, I don't know everybody's name, because yeah. I'll have a hundred people working with me during the week, and but I do make sure that every makeup and hair person, I go and shake their hand before we start, you know what I mean, our week, and make sure that, you know, I say to them, thank you for volunteering, because everyone volunteers, no one gets paid, including me. So we all do this, you know, when we, and it's a give back, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so we've given to God, the boys and girls club I've given to, um, homeless, a homeless shelter that helps women and children that they have at one of the churches I've given to, uh, recreation, um, to baseball, you know, for the kids. Um, we've given to last year, we gave to Hudson pride center that helps gays and lesbians, you know, with regard to diseases and explaining to them and promote safe sex. So we go all over, um, with regard to our donations and how we divvy them up because my mission is to help groups that I care about and that, and it's like a broad list this year. We want to give to the police athletic league as well as black, which is the black law enforcement. We want to do that in honor of the officer that was shot in Jersey City. And so I haven't told them yet. So this is oh. the first time that I'm announcing who we're going to give to. We're also going to donate to Shriners Children's Hospital. Um, that commercial did it for me. So I <laughs> we will donate to them. I usually donate to more than one group um, for the season. So this season, that's who we'll donate to. And I'm going to try to figure out who to call the PAL in Jersey City and the, um, the Black Law Enforcement Group in Jersey City to let them know that we'd like to make a donation. I'm hoping that the officer will walk my runway uh that nice. will be something i'm going to ask them to do oh, that's awesome i think i remember when you first started doing that yes and i think it's incredible that you're still doing it yes thank you and how do you decide what charities you're going to give to i usually pick them um with uh on advice and consent of my people who uh volunteer so this year we had the conference call about a month ago and they mentioned that I said, it's a great idea. You know what I mean? That'd be great to give to law enforcement, you know, and we may even invite, you know, the officer's family to come, you I know, think and, that's nice. and to, to say, we're so sorry. You know what I mean? That that happened to him. Um, so, you know, they give us suggestions because we like to touch the community, you know, with what we do. Um, and that's how, that's how we do it, you know? Thank you for doing that. Thank you. If you ever need any help, let me know. Always. I don't do makeup, but. <laughs> we always need help. I do a mean smoky eye, but only on myself. <laughs> I can't do it on other people. So what's next for you? 
I, you know, I don't know. There's a part of me that feels that um, I'm supposed to, at this point, uh, focus on being in private practice and building a career helping people directly, um, not so much from a government perspective, um, and, and trying to make a difference. And I feel this is right because this was one of the reasons why I became a lawyer, right, was to fight against racism and to, and to fight the good fight, you know, and wear that white hat on behalf of people. And I believe that at this point, you know, I'm doing it and I enjoy doing it. Obviously, there's good times and bad times and clients and issues. But for the most part, I feel like I'm on purpose right now and focus on building um, the ministry that, you know, God wants me to build. And, you know, hopefully within the next five to six years, you know, become ordained and do what I'm supposed to do. Mm, what is that? Preach. I like that. Oh, you just have like a very emotional, passionate look on your face now <laughs> that I haven't seen. Yes. When you talked about the other things. Yes. How come you can't do that now? I can preach, um, which I guess people will tell you this. What I'm going to do on YouTube with my pastor, Pernell Wright, is ministry. I'm a minister, right? Without being ordained, you know, you don't need to be ordained to try to teach people you know, how to live better lives with God. Um, but obviously I feel the calling to, you know, be licensed and go through at some point, someone, something <laughs> yeah. to say, okay, you're officially this and go from there. I don't know if I'm going to have a traditional, I don't think I'm going to have a traditional, I'm standing up in church. You know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be an evangelist. You know what I mean? I do have prophetic abilities. Um, and, and at times are called prof prophetess. Um, um, so I have had that experience, you know, everyone has special gifts. Um, so I don't know what part of the fivefold ministry God is going to say, okay, I want you to, you know, be a teacher, you know what I mean? Um, so I don't know if that's going to be where he's going to lead me to be, but I do know that I must start, you know, to give the, the word in the way I feel the spirit is leading me to give. So, and I do have pastor friends who I've talked to about this and they completely understand, you know what I mean? Yeah. If the spirit is leading you, do what the spirit say. Yeah, you're on your path and mm -hmm. desire is leading you the way. That's right. Well, I'll be watching you. Thank you. And I would encourage you to do a podcast. Yes. I'll listen to it. Yes. No, this is cool. This yeah. is wonderful. I enjoyed your story and oh. it's like, it's not even close to being done. You have so much more to do. <laughs> yes, I think so too. I think so, too. Um, and I want to be excited, you know what I mean, about this part of my life. You know, um, I had to get used to not having my parents around. Um, that was a huge transition. Um, my yeah. father passed away in 2013. My mom passed away in 2016. While I always knew, you know, they would be gone, it is not easy yeah. um, to, to go through that. I visit my mom's grave three or four times a year. She's in Freehold. Um, so, you know, she's with me. I feel her, you know, spiritually. You said you forgave your dad. Did you forgive him before he passed? Yes. Um, I worked on that and it, it was, I started to forgive him, I should say, before he passed. And it really became afterwards that I got into, you know, what was the problems? You know, it wasn't a situation of any kind of, uh, there was no molestation or anything like that. It was more psychological and that he, it, the love wasn't there the way that 
I would feel a man who's your father should love you. I've watched other dads, you know what I mean? And my dad was not affectionate. He was, you know, like just the way he treated me, it was more of a competition. It was more of, you know, putting me down as opposed to lifting me up. And we had an argument right before he died, about three months before he died. And he had made a comment to me that basically made me know that my father was more, how do you say a little envious, you know what I mean, of what I did in my life. And it took a lot, you know, for me to hear that. You know what I'm saying? He and admitted that to you? He didn't, but he made a comment to me like, um, you think you're great or something. Mm. And but he was, should have been so happy for you. This was three months before he died. And I stopped talking to him, you know, over that. I did what I had to do if I had to pick him up from dialysis, if he needed to go to the doctor, if he wanted an apple. I still took care of my parents, but I stopped talking to him because I was so devastated at the confirmation of what I always thought, you know what I mean, yeah. was an issue. Now, I knew my dad, again, just like that white man who said colored. My dad was 80-something. He came from a different time, and I always felt that my dad had issues with women in power and women with authority and women in positions which always led me to believe he has a power a, a problem with me because I've always been independent. I've always been in positions of power. I've always been a leader. And so I always felt him saying that he was proud, but not really ever meaning, it. you know what I mean? Like I never yeah. felt like my dad was really 100% gung ho and things happen in my life. Like when I passed the bar exam and the day I get my results and my mom and I are hugging each other and we're happy and I pass and my dad, what does he say? You still don't know what a contract is. Oh, yeah. It, it sours the experience that should be happy. This was the type of stuff that I had to go through, you know, and then at Christmas getting all the gifts and being spoiled, you know what I mean? But not being loved appropriately, you know what I mean? And being put down in a sense. And I know that a lot of women have psychological and emotional damage from how they were treated by their father or lack thereof. And this relationship is essential to yeah. how you have relationships with men outside of that household. Absolutely. And also the way that you see your mother have a relationship exactly. with that person. Exactly. And that's what has led me to, I have to heal myself. And it's been a journey. You know what I mean? It's not, oh, I'm healed. You know what I mean? You don't wake up. Yes. That. You have to deal with the issues, the self, the, wor the, the worthiness issues that you create from not feeling worthy because your father didn't think you were, or you, at least you believe that. And you can't just break that overnight. Yeah. Absolutely. And you also, there's another aspect of that is you don't get to just be you. That's right. Which I think that's all any of us really wants exactly. is to just be who we are. Not who they think we should be. And to recognize that my father's biases came from, right? Yeah. Suppression and discrimination. Uh, you know what I mean? Because he came from that error. So how do you get these men to click? You know what I mean? He wasn't doing that well. So how do you accept, you know what I mean, what your daughter's doing? And it, it wasn't just me. His other kids did not have a great relationship with him either when he had his first marriage. So I wasn't the only one. I'm just the one who verbalized because I want to see other people heal too. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I know I'm not the only one, you know, who's been through negative experiences with parents. We have to heal those emotional you wounds. You sure aren't. <laughs> yep. If you can heal those, that's going to help you in your life. You have to recognize them and acknowledge them. Yes. Absolutely. If you were raised by a narcissist, 
<laughs> just like, if you were raised by a psychotic, you know what I mean? But, I mean, and it, it doesn't even have to be classified. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's just how someone treats you to make you feel in a certain way. And that's how long are you with your, you know what I mean? You're yeah. with them 18, 20 years. And it really has nothing to do with you. It's all about them. Exactly. But so. we internalize it yeah, and make we it, do. we did something wrong. Yeah. Cause we don't know that when you're just a little kid, you don't exactly. know that. Exactly. Yeah. And you must unlearn that so you can feel worthy. So let me ask you this. Are you married? No, I am not. Have you ever been married? No, I have not. Do you think that that has something to do with it? Absolutely. I never, and I just said this to myself, and I've said this to myself over the years. I've never had a dream about me getting married. I've never saw myself with a wedding dress. I've never talked about incense. Oh, when I get married, you know what I mean? And I realized through my life, I've never done it. And all my other girlfriends, you know, they'll talk about who they want to marry. And, you know, they'll say, I'm going to have a dress like this. Look, this, I barely, if ever, I mean, maybe twice in my life did I look in a bridal magazine at all, not with the intent of this is the kind of dress I would want. And I think that has a lot to do with it because I think you do kind of in part speak your existence but you know what I mean believe yes. your existence yeah. right so it's like I never spoke that so why would that happen but there's a reason why I never spoke that because I was raised in a situation that I did I was scared that everybody I meet would be like my father who wants that yeah. My father was emotionally messed up. I don't want to be with emotionally messed up people but I think part of that fear attracted that. And so I have, that's why I have to unlearn. I mean, right now I'm not trying to date. I'm not interested because I'm interested in healing. Yeah. And if I can heal, maybe, you know what I mean? But I'm 49 going on 50 right now. I'm chill. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I don't need, not because I hate, I love men. I love women. I love everybody. You know what I mean? I just want to heal and I want to learn how to be me and love me and have worthiness and I would love to as I go through this teach other people to at least identify and heal too because healed people heal people and healthy people attract other healthy people excellent yeah so that's interesting that you recognize that see it's never too late that's right it's never too late to heal that's right. Recognize those things. Unfortunately, yes. sometimes we do it later in life. Exactly. Not, not when we're 20. Enough. Exactly. Well, exactly. thank you for sharing that. That's very personal. Oh, yeah. No problem. I guess we have to end with the five questions. Sure. Even though you've given me a lot of your time. And I appreciate <laughs> it. So although I think these questions are, you know, pale in comparison to the other things we've talked about. What's the best business advice you ever got? Hmm. Um, learn how to balance, like, don't let your clients take over your life. That's great advice. i learned that the hard way. Mm -hmm. What's the best life advice you ever got? Mm. Oh, wow. Learn how to balance. <laughs> don't let your work take over your life. Don't, yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of overlap. You know, sometimes That's, one is the same for the other. Yes. What person do you most admire and why? Oh, wow. Um, who do I admire? Um, I'm going to say I admire, like, Michelle Obama. Um, 
I like her because she she's a sister who's smart. Um, she was a great lawyer, so it wasn't like she's faking it. Yeah, <laughs> she didn't just become a lawyer just to be a politician. Yes. You know what I'm saying? She actually worked in the trenches and did the big firm thing. And I like the positions she takes. You know what I'm saying? And things that she supports. And I really enjoy the fact that she's able to speak truth about marriage and about relationships. You know, I've reposted some of the things she says, like, you know, being a wife is not the end all and be all of life. And I think that people need to hear that, not because I don't want people to get married, but yeah. because I want people to be in healthy. You know what I mean? Like strive to be who you're supposed to be first yeah. and be healthy. Then you can, you know, get married. But getting married shouldn't be that's all I, you know, if I do that, I'm done. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. just, it's part of life, no. but not the end all. Like she would, she says things, it's hard. You know, you got to keep your relationship going. You have to show respect. I appreciate her advice and I hope women learn from her. And I admire her for even saying that. She was married to a man who was the president of the United States. Who would say, you know what I mean? Just because you're married, it's not, doesn't mean, okay, everything's great. You know what I'm trying to say? Who says that? I think it's really relevant today because I feel like there's still a lot of women that feel like there's this choice that they have to make that they're either going to be, you stay at home, they're going to be the good wife and good mom, or they're going to be the career woman. And you can be both. Why right. can't you be both? And I think right. Michelle is a good example of that. Yes. And I think she says that That's in right. so many words that That's right. you can do all of these things. You can be a good supportive wife and have That's a loving right. relationship That's and right. be a good mom and yep. have a career. Yep. You can do it. And that's why I support, you know, support her and I admire her before a married woman. It's different if a single woman said, you don't have to be married to be whole. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. For a married woman to insinuate, marriage is good, you can have it, but you don't have to be married to be, that's different. Yeah. People will listen because they will think a single woman is just saying that because you're bitter and you didn't find anyone. <laughs> you know what yes, I mean? so spinster. Exactly, I, mean, I exactly. don't know if anybody even still uses right. that word. But I think women need to hear that. Here's someone who's intelligent and great looking, married to someone who's intelligent and great looking, saying that just because I'm a wife doesn't make it everything i'm perfect you know what i'm saying yeah. no do more with your life you know what i mean that can come you know that's why it's important because women don't realize we keep getting into the same craziness over and over again where we get abused we get emotionally abused we get used and men too men too yeah you know what i mean yeah stop the emotional roller coasters get off heel marriage is great but can you be who you truly should be yeah, I was just going to say that. We were just talking about that a few minutes ago. Just be you. Mm -hmm. It's kind of corny, but I, every once in a while I post one of those things on Instagram. It just says, just be you. Mm -hmm. And it's so simple. I'll always go back to it. I, I think at the end of the day, that's really all of us want. That's right. I, it's really what Michelle's saying, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's a good example. Did you read her book? I haven't yet. Yeah, I haven't. I keep saying I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. I have to sit and do it. I haven't read a book in a while. You're a busy lady. You're yeah. changing the world. Do you have <laughs> the book? Is it like us sitting on your shelf? No, I, I keep saying I'm going to buy it. I was going to buy it online. You know what I mean? Like yeah, the, the on thing. Amazon. Yeah, on Amazon. But I said, you know what? I don't want to do that. It's been a long time since I sat and read, read a book. And I said, there's something therapeutic. There is. About sitting and reading. I love books. Mm -hmm. I have a thing for books. 
you know, I grew up in an environment that wasn't warm and fuzzy exactly Mm -hmm. either. And when I remember being a teenager and just reading all the time, and I think it was kind of an escape for me and it Mm. was therapeutic. And to this day, I'm about to be 45 on March 21st. Thank you. I still love books. I have like a visceral experience when I pick up a book. I love Barnes and Noble. Yes. So they bring me a lot of comfort. Yes. Okay, next question. I feel like I want to ask you number three again because you would probably come up with somebody good. But what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Everything is going to be okay. Good one. And it is. Yes. What would you tell other women who are thinking of starting their own law firm but are afraid? Um, I would tell them to try to get try to get the right amount of money. I think that having funding is important. I'm I'm doing it based on faith. <laughs> Literally God provides me with clients, he pays my bills. This was not a planned event. <laughs> yeah. Um people refer all my clients refer to me. People call me out of the blue every day. I got people referring to me from all over the country. Um that's God. I tithe. I always have more money to tithe. I would say if you're going to go out and you're going to make that decision, plan it, you know, try to save some money, have a little bump for yourself. Yeah. You know, if you can get the loan, you know, and you can start getting the business in, start getting business in before, you know, what yeah. I mean? get your plan name ahead. out there, plan ahead, start getting business in, put yourself out there. So you're not just kind of starting sitting around like, yeah, <laughs> waiting for the phone to ring. So those are the things I would say. Good. And do it because you want to do it you know and do it with a passion if it's not your passion don't do it because it's it, business is tough and you're competing against people and don't do it if you're not passionate about helping people whatever area it is yeah yeah whatever you're doing whatever, whatever if if you're working at starbucks right. well unless maybe you're putting yourself through college but whatever your career is you really do have to love it and have a passion for it right. it's or it's just not sustainable yes anyway on that note Thank you. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. Good interview. Thank you.